Hi there, I'm Doogie Vipon and welcome to Future Fit Farming, a podcast series brought to you by Royal Bank of Scotland. And in this episode, we're talking about the future of cooperation and how small and medium-sized farms and communities coordinate and work together. Today, I have three expert guests to discuss this with me. First up, we have Andy McDonald from Savills, which provides a range of specialist management and consultancy services to food and farming businesses, delivering practical support and guidance in this constantly changing industry. Andy, how are you doing? Really good, thanks, Steve. Thanks for inviting me as well. It's great to have you. We also have Laura Ryan from Meet Business Women. Now, Laura is on a mission to connect talented and dedicated professional women in every role within the meat industry all over the globe transforming the industry's image, culture, and landscape. Welcome to you, Laura. Thanks, Doogie. Fantastic to be with you. Our third guest is Tim Bailey from SAOS, Scotland's experts on farmer co-ops and food industry collaboration, providing a range of specialist information, development, and consultancy services to help businesses work together more efficiently. Hi there, Tim. Hi, Doogie. Great to be here and great to be with everyone else. Great stuff. Let's start with you, Tim. Let's, you're a facility for... for co-op working. So how do you see that particular landscape in agriculture in Scotland and wider in the UK right now? I would say in terms of the, the Scottish landscape, the um, cooperation um, landscape is looking pretty good, actually. Um, I mean, one of probably the, the biggest challenge we've had within the kind of the co-op cooperative sector has been, that it, frankly, not been very good at selling itself. And, you know, within within Scotland, about a third of agricultural uh, turnover is actually generated through co-ops which is which is great you know across all kind of key sectors and so you know th there's a great footprint and kind of talk about it being kind of the engine room you know the, the kind of scottish agriculture in terms of the rest of, in the rest of the uk the the level of sort of cooperation is, is lower and sort of colleagues um look, you know look across the border with a you know with a degree of kind of jealousy really but you know again there's great you know great outputs um and and, and ultimately as we'll talk about later there's, there's great opportunities for co-ops to help both agriculture and food industry and and the policymakers deliver what they need absolutely andy from a property and consultancy point of view how do you see that uh, landscape i think as you said in your intro doogie that um there's a lot of things changing in food and farming and the the landscape today and that that brings challenges but it brings opportunities and i think there's quite a lot of um informal cooperation uh going on as well between different types of farmers uh, as well as the more formal joint venture type arrangements contract farming uh share farming right up to full formal co-ops as um tim was mentioning earlier so i, I think there's there's likely to be more interest in it. We're certainly seeing that it's uh, it's a growing area in both formal and informal cooperation. Laura, you run a, a different kind of co-op, bringing women together in the meat industry. So tell me about the idea in the first place, how you went about setting it up. And, and since you have that value of networking, because you're all around the world now, aren't you? Yeah, great question. Thank you. So it really started, I fell into the meat industry by total accident 20 years ago. And as a kid, I didn't even like going in the butcher's shop. So uh, having a career in the meat industry wasn't one that I thought, yeah, that, that's definitely what I'm going to do. But absolutely loved it and love the passion, challenge, pace, everything that the industry brings. But 
as I guess my career got more senior, I was realizing I was the only woman in the room. And when I would chat to my mates on a weekend over a G&T, they would say, working in the meat industry sounds awful. What are you doing that for? So there was a bit of a perfect storm of actually, we've got a talent pipeline issue and a reputation issue. So Meat Business Women was born six years ago, and now we're operational in UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and launching in the in Canada later this year. So it brings women together and guys as well, but predominantly women in a pre-competitive space um, and we are a membership organization now so we've got big corporates that are part of our organization and individuals too can join they get monthly master classes mentoring and just actually a space where we can network unfortunately networking can always feel like a bit of a cherry on top of the cake whereas we know it's always who you know not necessarily what you know and particularly for women networking isn't always carved out as part of your day job so yeah meet business women's on a mission to do that and ultimately attract talent into the meat industry and retain it as well. Um, our latest figures show only 5% of CEOs in the meat industry are female. So we're keen to get more to the top. Absolutely. And, and let's stay with you, Lauren, and chat about, you know, this post-Brexit world. We're still in early days and we're never quite sure exactly, you know, how it's going to develop. But do you think this is an opportunity uh, for networking and co-ops to come together and really sort of push that brand UK around the world? I think it is. Um, I, I think it's really interesting as well. There was a, a fascinating article in The Grocer uh, recently talking very much around this point about Brand UK and looking at Brand UK domestically and the fact that some brands are taking the union flag off pack because it's seen as overly patriotic. Uh, and I know for export markets, we like to talk about Brand UK. For, for some of that, that's fine. But I guess as a marketeer at heart, we can't just rely on country of origin alone. We need to know is it better quality? Is it better service? What is it that's underpinning that beyond country of origin? So I think there's a huge opportunity, but I think sometimes um, we can just defer to thinking, well, that's where it comes from and it's going to be better. And that's not always the case. Uh, and, and we're dealing across all categories, but particularly in meat and a very competitive market. But I think pre-competitively, particularly around sustainability, and we know we've got COP26 coming up later this year in Scotland, we need to come together and Brand UK can play a strong part in that. Definitely. And Tim, given that post-Brexit there are now some competition exemptions uh, for farming co-ops, what um, could individual farmers do right now to cooperate and grow, do you think? Firstly, there's an element of, you know, look back at their own business and see, you know, what their um, business ambitions are, what their, I suppose, vision is of where, where there is in the future. And, you know, maybe come back to some of it where, you know, Laura's just been talking about, about market opportunities. Um, and, you know, some of it can be quite, you know, can be quite stark saying, oh, my goodness, there's a great market opportunity out there, for example, the meat, meat industry. But how, how am I going to do that? You know, how can I do that myself? And that would be a classic case of saying, well, actually, are there other, any other like minded uh, producers who I could um, get together with? And as Andy said, in, whether it's informal, you know, whether it's kind of a mini, a, a mini, a mini or a maxi form of cooperation of working together, it doesn't doesn't particularly matter but it's about saying well how can we pull our pull our pull our vision pull our talents pull our resources to actually capitalize on opportunity and so i think that's the first thing is you know what do i need what do i need to take my business forward and where is there an opportunity in being closer to market and then i think secondly it's just yeah you know, it's the old classic about well, what do i do next so it's you know in terms of getting that advice and it's obviously a range of it you know advice agencies out there but i mean certainly for you know members that we deal with in the north of england and certainly within scotland then you know all i would say is by all means just you know pick up the phone send us an email because sometimes it can be a bit daunting of where, you know, where do i start um 
and, and trying to over egg, you know, trying to trying to overcomplicate it. And the first thing is take it back to basics. If you got if you got a business plan, you know, and if you know in terms of how you want to take things forward, and then you know, cooperation is the means to that end. It's not you know the end in itself. So Andy, in an ever-changing landscape, how important is resilience within the, the industry? I think it's hugely important, Dougie. And you know, we've seen such volatility and change in the last 12, 18 months. Looking forward to Brexit a year ago, we could have predicted some potentially really dire consequences, particularly on the big exporters like um, red meat exports into Europe. And then along comes COVID and changes the dynamic completely. And it's provided uh, opportunity, but also challenge for uh, businesses within the whole food chain in terms of meeting demand and in terms of uh, meeting the, the supply, matching the supply to the demand and the change in uh, consumer behavior as well. And the shift from um, eating out of the home to largely eating in the home because you can go anywhere. Um, and these are all external factors that can potentially impact these uh, food and farming businesses that they have little influence on. So um, trying to make the, the business more resilient and control the things that it can control is even more important from both a, a business and a, a market and sustainability perspective, I think. You go along with that, Laura? Yeah, I think for, for me, the meat industry is always, unfortunately, a bit of a trader mentality. And I think I would encourage folks listening, both at farmer level and processor level, to think more strategically. Andy's totally right in terms of that there's very little you can do in the short term on farm. But when we're looking at the moment, free trade deals being discussed on a global level, uh, what is it, and I guess it's back to the earlier question around Brand UK, what is it we can do to differentiate? We've still got the um, just uh, under half the amount of cattle in this country aren't hitting spec uh, and, and we're at a 10-year price high uh, and we could have external comp competition. So what is it we're all doing as individuals to slowly shift that dial and to slowly make our products even higher quality than they currently are when other competitors will be coming into the market? Not, not Withstanding the point that yet at the moment uh, deadweight prices are particularly high. Laura, I want to ask you about cooperation with women in particular. Do you think that you know women are maybe more open to the idea of cooperation, and whereas men might look across the, the fence or look across the field and go, "He's doing quite well. That's annoying me. I'm, not, I'm quite jealous of that. Less inclined to work together." Or am I just being making too much light of that? Is that is that a daft thing to say, or do you think there's a difference of mindset there? Do you know what? What I've noticed over the last six years, particularly when we're in person, um, so virtually it's harder to spot, but particularly when we're at physical events, there's no hierarchy when you're in a room of women. When you're in a room of guys, there's a natural hierarchy. You know, if you've got a CEO sat there, folks are glancing at them and thinking, you know, is that now my turn to talk? At Meet Business Women events, interestingly, and it wasn't by design. This is just something that I've observed. You can be have you know, president of the NFU for England and, and Wales sat next to a young grad and everyone feels the same. 
and that drives more collaboration. People are more likely to actually say, I've got a good idea. And it doesn't matter where you are in your career that you could have a fantastic idea. But if you, you know, feel nervous of the hierarchy and don't feel that you've got that space to speak, then it ain't going to happen. So yeah, it, it, it is. And I guess that's one of my passion points, really. It doesn't have to be a room of women, but if you get more diverse mix on a board, then you're going to have less groupthink. You're going to have different ideas and, you know, the well-trodden McKinsey figures. You're going to have better financial results at the end of it as well. So get more diversity and yeah that, that's what we don't see necessarily in the meat industry at the moment and we're, we're on a mission to do it and grit and the big processes are as well and, and, and they see it's hugely important for them. Anna you find that you know this is you're, you're pushing an open door or are you still trying to find the keys to the locks? Um, a bit of a mixed bag. So the, the, the big players in this space uh, realise it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, the, the ones that are aligning to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, we're recognised by the UN now, so they, they know they need to play. The smaller ones, less so. It's still some maybe the... the um, smaller family-owned businesses, not probably because they don't want to, but because they've got had Brexit, they've had COVID, it's a trader mentality, particularly in the meat industry. And you're thinking, this is another thing to do. We, you know, I, I've got a massive list to sort out. So I think they will come to the party. And it's interesting, you know, the big retailers are now turning around to their supply base and saying, prove how you're doing this. So uh, slowly there'll be external pressures if it's not internally pushed. And we are desperate for talent you know, across agriculture and organisations will realise, particularly, you know, post-Brexit, we, we have got labour issues. We can't be ruling out half of the population. So, and and also population, like, like myself, as I said, I've got no agricultural background. We need to be attracting folks, townies like me, that the industry that we work in is great. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, no doubt about that. And Andy, given that you know access to land is, is often sort of the big insurmountable problem to new entrants and farming, how can cooperative working and, and cooperation work to maybe solve that? I think there's a, a huge number of opportunities in broadening our approach and mindset. You know, there's the the phrase of I been um, in agriculture and lots of other industries. It's I've been that way. That's not an excuse or a reason for it to continue in that way. I was looking at it recently in relation to a livestock farm in the West where there was a, a new contract farming agreement got set up and contractor who was in his early 30s but really keen to get involved in the industry and get further involved came in as a, as a contractor on an upland livestock farm um, with uh, cattle and sheep. Now, if he had had the opportunity of coming into that farm as a tenant, the working capital requirement he would have needed to pay the rent, buy all of the livestock and trade for a year before he had any income coming in was huge. You know, for a young guy in his 30s, talking about half a million plus and no guarantee of any return, yet in a a contract farming scenario, he has the skills, the enthusiasm and the time and has a guaranteed level of income coming in from his contract fee, as well as the potential for generating a profit share if he's done a good job, which gives him opportunity to build his skills and capital. So that's just one example of how by being more dynamic and less close-minded in what we do and how we set things the access to land is is one issue, but um, getting 
new talent in, as Laura mentioned, and more diversity into the industry and finding uh, different ways to achieve that, I think is probably more important than just access to land. And how complicated is that then? You know, you're, you're talking about, you know, entrant farmers and, and, and you know, tenants of op opportunities. I mean, how complicated is it to get, set these things up? Because it sounds like a great idea, but is it not quite a difficult thing to, to do in the first place? It's becoming a lot more common and it, it, it probably started off as a, something which was largely in the arable sector. And if we're being uh, uh, honest about it, um, was probably seen as an alternative to a tenancy from a landowner's perspective. And there were tenancies in disguise. That is much less so the case now. They're genuinely much more collaborative types of arrangements. And you see uh, contract farming and share farming structures in uh, beef, sheep, dairy, arable. And as they're becoming more common, they're becoming better understood by everyone and seen as uh, just one of the many ways in which um, farming can be done now. Because it is becoming more widely known and widely accepted, people understand it more. Um, but it needn't be necessarily be contract farming. It could be just informal machinery sharing. And again, if you think outside the farm gate and within even a sector, you could have for example, a beef farmer and a dairy farmer sharing grassland machinery. If you had two dairy farmers, they'd be, both be wanting the moor and the forager on the same day. They'd both be wanting to go now. But if the beef farmer is doing a, a single cut in July and the dairy farmer is doing two or three cuts that don't coincide, they can cooperate and collaborate with machinery and labour and for reduced cost and increased uh, benefit to both. Tim, in, informal machine sharing is one thing, but obviously there's a never-ending sort of march of technology and the growing costs that go along with that, with new machinery. Um, so how do you think cooperative working will, will help with that? I mean, I, I think Andy, sort of, you know, you basically kind of uh, touched on that there, but I mean, they, you know, things are changing all the time and people want the latest machine to do the jobs that they can do. So, and sometimes they're ridiculously expensive. So how did it, you know, cooperative working actually help with that? I mean, I think it's interesting to, to bring you a question there with, with what Andy was saying just now about mind, the mindset. I think that's a, that's a, that's a crucial one, you know, across the whole sector that if we can kind of change the, the, you know, the narrative and change the mindset around cooperation in all its guises, then actually we start overcoming some of these barriers. And, you know, historically it's been one of those things where, I think there's been a, you know, I, whether it's about on machinery sharing or whether it's about becoming a member of a co-op or any range of things in between, there's this element of, well, I, 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 lose, I lose some business independence. The reality is, you know, there's probably one of your best ways to protect the independence of your business if you can actually cooperate better. And so I think, yeah, if you can overcome that mindset, then if at one level you've got the machinery sharing, it's actually a case of saying, well, hang on a minute, there's, there's six farms and, you know, we're in the same area, we've got slightly different setups, you know, why don't we go for something bigger, better and everything else, but, but have a, you know, the right structured agreement the likes of Andy and other colleagues can, can put in place. Right through to, you know, we, we see actually, you know, there's really great examples, you know, particularly in the Scottish sector through the machinery ring sector, which are, are they're established actually as cooperatives. And, and really, though, they were set up um, back in the back in the 1980s as a way of utilising resource better, whether it was machinery or labour, and they were effectively matching agencies in terms of where there was a where there was a demand and where there was a supply of machinery 
and of labor and everything else that uh, you know if you joined the co-op you paid an annual fee you got access to that and and that has been hugely successful and there's like seven thousand uh, members of machinery rings across across Scotland now and and you know they've, they've diversified into a whole whole bunch of areas you know around commodities around utilities etc cetera, etc cetera. so so I think that's a that's a, a low cost way of actually getting access to the better the, the biggest the quickest the strongest stuff as well and I think also the other thing with technology some of it's not some of it's not actually that expensive but you don't know what you don't know sort of thing and you know we've been doing a bit of work around the use of um, digital sensors on real-time sensing and farming it's not actually very expensive but people sort of think well what's that involved how's that what do i do so you know we're trying to move on to the next stage of saying well actually if a few of you get together you kind of you know pull pull your access to it pull your investment actually you can try it together at a low cost but ultimately it comes back to you can take the horse to water but you know it will only drink if uh, you know if we overcome this mindset I think that's a really good point you bring up there, Tim, is, you know, the with any kind of new technology or new approach, there can be the fear of, will it work? But if you have a group of people together using that uh, technology, you get the, oper- the opportunity for discussion and, uh, and debate on whether it's worthwhile, whether it's working and so on. And the point Laura made earlier in terms of what the the market requires, there's likely to be increasing market requirements in terms of audit for um, climate and carbon and sustainability as well. And again, if there's collaboration between parties rather than uh, individual producers and their individual farms worrying about how to achieve things, if you can achieve discussion and collaboration at the same time it's likely that more people are going to be able to better meet what the market is likely to be requiring going forward too absolutely well laura i want to talk to you about meet business women because you set that up back in 2015 so i've been going for six years now could you give me a sense of some tangible successes in cooperative working you've had through uh, since setting up the organization yeah i think um and it's it's hard just to pinpoint one to be honest with you because every time that we bring our groups together there is individual connections that are made so that can be small things like friendships which is again powerful on its own and then through to business connections I guess when I reflect on our journey for me it was getting the phone call from the United Nations back in 2019 uh thinking they said to me we don't normally ring anyone up but we've seen what you're doing we think you're you're achieving the sustainable development goals for the global meat industry around gender equality will you come out and speak to us um and uh, so I, I didn't need long to think about that I said yeah c- of course I will so uh when I went out to speak to them, so that was huge and then um I guess one of the milestones that we set ourselves as well was to have uh, raise our credibility not only on an intergovernmental level and we're doing a lot with the UN this year actually but also um we had uh, Royal Highness um the Princess Royal speak at our event back in 2019 as well she's closely affiliated to the meat industry and it just gave that sort of cementing that yeah we're on a path here and for corporates that were looking at us thinking you know should we get involved uh, I think that that helped uh, to, to add weight to that and then also industry royalty we had Temple Granding speak at that same event too so I think we've spent probably four years just raising awareness of what we're doing and then the last two in particular and I have to admit through the pandemic it's pushed us harder quicker to get digital we that was always our plan but because we're across so many different time zones 
and the barriers to entry now everyone's just so used to zoom and teams it's easy it has allowed us to pull our community to, together more effectively and then i guess the final thing that i would mention is we've just launched a global campaign called she looks like me the meat industry is totally faceless and we now want to show the different roles that exist and the different folks that are doing those roles in the meat industry and that'll help us regardless of gender that the meat industry is a positive one every single day there's negativity about the meat industry and we need a counter narrative so yeah th th there's loads and uh, yeah I won't take, take up your whole podcast doogie talking about them but yeah they would be my three no I would I'm happily listen to every one of them it's, it's amazing it's great and I, and I get really excited by what you're doing it's, it's fantastic and, and and long overdue actually and, and I, I wish you all the very best so let's Let's finish with you, Laura, because we, um, well, we'll hear from everyone, but I'll ask this question. You know, um, let's look forward now. What do organisations like yours that need to see to ensure crops are working can enable farming to be future fit? I think, and it loops back to one of your earlier questions, actually, about am I pushing on an open door? I think it's allowing business leaders to empower their teams to give them time to do that pre-competitive cooperative working. Everybody is so busy and we're flat out doing day jobs. We need to, as part of business as usual, allow folks to have that networking time, that benchmarking time, that ability to look over the fence and think, oh, they're doing it like that. I would be interested to get involved and work together rather than just accidentally bumping in into cooperative working, make it part of everything that you do. Be that meet business women or be that other groups, they're out there, but spend the time to connect and, and having that sign off from the top to allow folks to, uh, to, to do that. And if you're a business owner, I guess, listening to this, then you, it's a no brainer, just do it. Absolutely. And for you, Andy, what about from your point of view? I think there's so many different opportunities, but I think the, the single biggest thing comes back to that mindset thing and thinking beyond the farm gate and beyond the farm boundary. I think we will see increasing challenges from marketplace, from um, climate and from market requirements as well. And um, there are so many of them that farmers have no control over whatsoever, but they do have control over their own businesses and and potentially co cooperation collaboration with other businesses and if we can think outside the farm gate and the farm boundary for example um the qms guys running a monitor farm on collaboration between livestock farm and an animal farm there's so much um joint benefit that is likely to come forward that are is going to make our entire industry more resilient and to look back to some of the things that Laura was mentioning as well, thinking about what the marketplace is and what the market requirements are, and that just relying on a flag on a label isn't enough. We have to be able to clearly demonstrate quality. It depends on mindset and outlook, and in some ways you could look at the next few years as really challenging, but the other way to look at it is really exciting and lots of opportunities, and I think that's the way that it, it really is. There are so many opportunities out there. And Tim, how do you see the future and, and what would you need to help you keep doing what you're doing? I mean, I think I'd reiterate what you know, both Laura and Andy have said there, that 
we've had kind of 12, 18 months of, you know, a lot of torment being thrown at us. You know, there's been a lot of negativity being thrown about certain parts of agricultural industry. But let's go back to the basics that we've got a, you know, we've got a rising global population. This, despite everything that's being thrown at it, there's still a rising demand for sustainable for protein, but in a sustainable way. So the underlying drivers that underpin, you know, UK agriculture yeah, and the UK uh, food industry are, are still there. But ultimately, if we want to capitalize on those market opportunities, if we want to demonstrate the sustainability credentials, so you know, to take Laura's point, we go beyond just putting a flag on a product. If we want to help the agricultural industry to adapt to what will be, you know, a reducing level of agricultural support, if we want to be able to invest in new technology, then the reality is, you know, the only way we can do that is by working better together and in cooperating in, in some way, shape, or form. So, so the drivers are good for our industry. But we can only capitalize on them by um, by cooperating better in terms of what um, and I think it's interest, more interesting areas around you know, the value around natural capital, for example, and also around data, an opportunity for, for, for farmers to literally get together and better hold the data they've all collectively got, because that's going to be a big value play down the line. So in terms of what would help us help achieve that, I guess, would be. I suppose, firstly, is, is quite a basic one is actually get rid of some barriers or potential barriers that, that exist for cooperative working. And sometimes that's about trying to access grants, even access lending, because there's a still lack of awareness, particularly about cooperative structures. And, um, you know, you're not registered through Companies House, for example, so you don't exist. Therefore, you're not, you know, you're not, you're, you know, you're not eligible for a grant. Well, yeah, but you're a still limited company. You're just registered through a different agency, the FCA. So that's quite a simple one. I think it's about uh, supportive um, uh, grant regimes. So the, there's been a been process in place for 30 years in the fruit and veg industry called the Producer Organisation Scheme, and that gets producers to work together to, to a common programme um, with a number of outputs, including environmental improvement, and, and that is match-funded. So for every pound that so the, the, the group of producers put in, there's a pound in support. So that encourages cooperative working and positive outputs and forward thinking and closer to market. Um, and then it's also about if, if there's if there's access to yeah if there's access to grants to help you know incentivize people to access those by working together so there's more bang for buck really I'm very much a you know glass half full um, on, apart from when my glasses are empty but <laughs> <laughs> Tim thanks to you and just thanks to all my guests on Future Fit Farming brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland in the next episode I'll be talking to four more guests on the topic of mental health and farming. To find more up-to-date agriculture and other business content, search NatWest Business Hub slash agriculture.